Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Lieutenant Colonel Don Faith Jr. Faith was the battalion commander for 1st Battalion, 32nd Infantry Regiment. It's part of the 7th, was part of the 7th Infantry Division during the Korean War. Specifically, we're going to talk about time in November and December of 1950 during the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. Now, a couple things worth bringing up here. 132 Infantry, your 1st Battalion, 32nd Infantry Regiment, at this time was a part of the 7th Infantry Division. Over time in the Army, in the military, we move units around for any number of reasons. And as we sit here today in 2020, and in fact for quite a few years now, 132 Infantry actually falls under the 10th Mountain Division. So you'll see this throughout military history. Regiments will, really, really regiments will shift around between different units so we can kind of maintain some of that heritage, even if the division that they were a part of might go away or be deactivated. So 132 Infantry, part of the 7th Infantry Division, in 1950. Today in 2020 is the same 132 Infantry in the 10th Mountain Division. Now, the Korean War, if we back up at a high level, is a civil war. It's a civil war between the North and the South, and other countries are going to get involved on on their respective sides with, with whoever they back. So Korea was a was occupied by Japan during the Second World War, all of Korea. There was one Korea at that point. And it was a Japanese territory, maybe is a way to say it. They had had conquered Korea or, or uh, invaded, taken over, and occupied Korea is a way to say that. Um, in 1945, when Japan surrendered, anywhere that they held control, like Korea, was divided. It was divided. That's not fair to say. Not everywhere was divided. But there were certain areas that, that met this criteria um, where there was a desire, when everybody wanted to help or be listed as the protector of this new territory, right? So um, we'd like to say that that's very altruistic, but there's some some political aims, political goals there as well, of course. So and it, Korea is, is divided between North and South Korea in 1945. And the idea is North Korea will be protected and helped through their reconstruction by the Soviet Union, one of the victors in the Second World War. South Korea, or the southern portion of Korea now, will be protected. That's an important part here. This is a country that was pretty well devastated during the Second World War. It's not a bad thing to have somebody stand in, a superpower or a, a strong military, and say, hey, we got you. We got your back. So protectorate is, is kind of how, uh, is a term that's thrown around a little bit there, especially especially in the early years. That changes over time, of course. But Anyway, South Korea, you're going to see support from the United States as well as Western democracies. Um, I'll, I'll use that term more than once to describe. I mean, we're talking about the Cold War, right? So just think of a divide down the middle with the Cold War. You've got China and the Soviet Union and then North Korea, like we're going to talk about here, and some other countries on the, the communist side. And then over on the other side, capitalist, democratic, Western democracies. That's, that's the split. And that's the split in Korea really at the 1945 mark. Now, by summer of 1950, well, before we get into the actual invasion, one of the challenges in the civil wars, Korea and then Vietnam, and these are just the major ones that the United States is involved in, 
is you have these two competing ideologies and political and, and ideologies and each side wants to generally you want everybody wants to see a reunification. There's not a lot of people that say, well, we're good. North and South, you know, separate but equal countries or whatever they might say. There, there's a lot of folks everywhere that want to see a, a form of reunification. The challenge always is reunification on what terms. So the reunification for somebody living in, in South Korea is going to look a lot different than what somebody living in North Korea wants to see in terms of unification. Think, think simply in terms of what the government is going to look like. Like the form of government, that's simple. You don't have to get any further than that. There's going to be massive disagreements. And, and that's the challenge that we see a lot when we have these kind of split countries and say, well, one country is going to be one of these new countries backed by the Soviet Union, one by the United States. And there were a lot of conflicts, as we know now, that broke out because of this. Now, in the summer of 1950, North Korea takes it upon themselves to reunite the Korean Peninsula. And... Great news for North Korea, right? Great news for, for China. Uh, they have a they share a border with North Korea, and they are allies with North Korea and with the Soviet Union. So, good, generally good news there. I mean, there's a lot of lot of uh, nuance to whether or not they would actually have been excited about this prospect and war um, so close to their border. But nonetheless, the idea of unifying, reunifying, if you will, the Korean Peninsula as a new ally to that side in this global power struggle. Good news generally. If you're in the South and there are North Korean tanks rolling across your border, it's not good news. And for the people, the countries, the organizations like the United Nations that back South Korea, it wasn't good news. And immediately it was met with a rebuttal with force. So the United Nations sent troops right away to the aid of South Korea. So as this war kicks off in the summer of 1950, the idea right out the gate is going to be at the very least, we got to get the North Korean troops out of South Korea. We have to reestablish that demilitarized zone. We have to reestablish that border, right? Which makes sense. First goal, get them out, help stand up South Korea. So American forces land, United Nations forces land. The Americans will make up, I want to say upwards of 90% of the UN force. So I'm going to almost exclusively talk about U.S. forces here during the story of, of Lieutenant Colonel Faith. Um, there are a lot of other countries involved in the Korean War, but but we're going to end up focusing pretty exclusively on, on U.S. Army and Marine units here today. Now, one of the first units to get there is going to be Faith's Battalion 132 Infantry, part of the 7th and the 7th Infantry Division. The reason for that is they're stationed in Japan. And just like we've seen throughout history, when there is a conflict that breaks out, the United States were, were more likely to send the nearest unit, why not, than to look to Fort Benning, Georgia. And who can we get ready on the eastern side of the United States to get them all the way across the Pacific to Korea? No, we've got guys in Japan. And you'd see this in Vietnam too. We would, we would tap the um, 173rd Airborne that was based out of Japan, I believe at that time, um, to come help because they're right there. It's just kind of an easier move. It, it will fall generally under that that um, that command. If there's a Pacific command, they're going to be um, one of those assets. So nonetheless, the 7th Infantry Division gets tapped. They're going to be one of the earlier units in the Korean War. Now, right out the gate, U.S. and U.N. forces kind of get their teeth kicked in. So we land on the peninsula, and you know we're landing on friendly territory and start to push north, and it does not go well. The North Korean Army, with at this point, it is – 
supported by the Soviet Union, supported by China, but on the ground, you are seeing pretty much exclusively North Korean troops. Remember, it's a civil war. So let's it, at this point, it's, it's relatively simple. The North Koreans are pushing through South Korea, and they just about remove UN forces from the peninsula. They are driving back to what ends up being known as an area on the, the southeast corner of South Korea around a port, which is really important. But it's going to be known as the Pusan perimeter, where the UN's at risk very quickly within the first three months or so of landing in South Korea of being removed entirely from the conflict. The war would be over, right? North Korea at that point would hold all of South Korea. And now we're talking about phase two could be uh, you know, landing on a hostile beach to try to retake South Korea. So the first part of this war did not look good for the United Nations, did not look good for South Korea. Eventually, there's going to be a couple different things taking place here. There's at a high level, North Korea starts to you know overextend their lines. It just takes time for the U.S. and the United Nations to build up power. And, and we are constantly building up in this port. Remember, Pusan is a port. So we're able to continually resupply and reinforce and slowly build up our forces. We've got naval superiority, especially in South Korea at this time. We have air superiority. This can be really important. And North Korea isn't quite ready to take on a long-term conflict in a foreign country. Maybe, maybe foreign country is not the right way to say it. But they've got deep lines running through South Korea, surrounded by people that they've just invaded, conquered, killed. Um, it's hard to maintain that for any army in any conflict. And the longer they're unable to, North Korea is unable to push the United Nations off the peninsula, the weaker and weaker that force becomes. Eventually, MacArthur will engineer kind of a uh, kind of come around a little bit behind the front lines, landing at Incheon, and you start to see. I think and that fall in the fall of 1950 and you start to see North Korean troops start to backpedal and they start to move out of South Korea and the tide has turned. Now there's enough forces in South Korea, both South Korean and United Nations forces that the air power, the naval power, the supplies, the momentum has shifted in the fall of 1950. And by October of 1950, not only is the United States and the United Nations forces moved back the North Korean forces across the border, we've crossed into North Korea. And it's it's almost as though the war aims changed, right? So from day one, it's let's reestablish that, that perimeter. But now we've got them on the run. Those North Korean troops that had us pinned, about to be kicked off the peninsula, now we have them on the run. And it's understandable that military and political leaders would look at that and say, hey, let's finish this. We have the upper hand. We have, you know, maybe the moral justification. We were defending against an attack, and now we're going to do away with this aggressor right here. Maybe it's time for the reunification of the peninsula on the southern, on, on South Korea's terms, right? So you start to see this push across the border into North Korea, and the U.S. is moving. I mean, they are making incredible progress, especially considered having spent the first few months of the war hold up just around the Pusan perimeter, moving backwards. So you kind of get this seesaw effect in the Korean War that can be a little hard to um, keep track of in a sense, but we're pushing back up through North Korea, but then comes the problem of China. Remember, North Korea shares a border with China, and they were all about having a unified Korea on their border on their terms, 
but it's not so exciting when it is a unified Korea on the United Nations terms or the United States or Great Britain or any one of the Western allies sharing a border with China. That's not something Mao and the Chinese are very excited about seeing. So you see the creation of something that's referred to as the People's Volunteer Army. This is the Cold War. Remember, there's a lot of conflicts that are going to take place where these superpowers don't want a direct line of evidence to come back to say they were involved in something. You would see Soviet and Chinese involvement in the Vietnam War against American forces. There's very clear examples of the United States helping arm the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, but it's not the United States, right? So don't don't get mad at us when when don't get mad at us, the Soviet Union, when when we're shooting down or our allies are shooting down your your helicopter. So it's this this one or two levels removed where open secret maybe is the way to say it. An open secret that you're involved. The People's Volunteer Army is an open secret. The P, the PVA, as it's known, is supposedly an all-volunteer force of Chinese nationals, Chinese soldiers that decided we have to support our allies, the North Korean people. And they were formed into military organizations. But because it's a People's Volunteer Army, the Chinese government says, hey, nothing we can do. These are volunteers going to fight on their own accord in another country. What are we supposed to do? Nonetheless, in the fall, early winter of 1950, you're going to see the some of the first attacks of the Chinese are going to conduct what's called their first phase campaign. They're going to, for the first time in the war, attack American units. And it's just an eye opener. So again, put yourself in the, the shoes of the advancing Americans. We've got this North Korean force on the run. You know, the war could be over soon. And bam, you run into this Chinese military machine. It changes the entire course of the war. And in retrospect, we can kind of point to when that happened in these these couple big attacks, or really, you know, the first Chinese attack in, in the fall of 1950. But at the time on the ground, it wasn't clear how many Chinese troops there were going to be and and what kind of support they were going to have and and their involvement, their expected involvement over the course of the war. So this first phase offensive, as the, as the Chinese call it, is, is going to be essentially stopping the U.S. advancing north. And they, they pretty well do that quickly. At least it gives the United States, forces the United States to sit back and say, wait a minute, things have changed a little bit. But that's not the end of it. During this time period in November of 1950, there's still a consideration that the war could be ended by Christmas. In fact, there's an initiative called the Home by Christmas Offensive, I believe is what it was called. And U.S. forces, despite Chinese involvement in the war, still believe that there's a that there's the opportunity to move all the way through North Korea to the Chinese border and to finish the war on the U.S., U.N., South Korean terms. So in mid to late November, you're going to see units start to move in and around an area known as the Chosen Reservoir. The Chosen Reservoir is a man-made lake about 150 miles into North Korea. So again, the United States is making pretty impressive movement north. But it's a nasty, nasty area in terms of terrain. Very canalizing, if you will. There's not a lot of ways in and out. Um, but that's going to be much of the terrain our soldiers are fighting in Korea at baseline. But when you get around Chosen, you're going to have issues moving east-west, north-south. And it's going to be relatively easy for enemy forces to kind of maneuver around because you just can't see over every single hill. And in 
late as late November comes in 1950, we've got this home by Christmas initiative and we're, we're setting up shop around this area known as the chosen reservoir. We're staging for the attack, like within days on the West side of the reservoir, you have largely Marine units on the, on the East side of the reservoir, you have largely army units. One of those units is known as the regimental combat team three, one RCT three, one. And there's a handful of units that make up the regimental combat team. It's led by a uh, a Colonel Alan McLean. One of the battalions in that unit is the 1st Battalion, 32nd Infantry, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Don Faith. And the organization is about 2,500. It's under strength. It should be bigger. The Chinese actually think that it is an overstrength unit. But nonetheless, they're spread out a little bit on the east side of the reservoir. And they're not dug in in super well-fortified defensive positions. And the reason for that is they're expecting to jump onto the attack the following day. I mean, within a matter of 24, 48 hours, they're going to be moving forward to assault into the Korean lines, Korean, maybe Chinese lines. So you don't need to, well, the thought is don't spend too much time digging in defensive positions because we're getting ready to move. And then on November 27th, 1950, the Chinese launch this second phase offensive, which is going to be designed to push the United Nations forces out of North Korea. They're going to reestablish that line that existed from 1945 until summer of 1950. And the second phase, they're going to, with this massive Chinese force that is now in country, or either in country or moving in country or available, maybe is a better way to say it. They're going to hit the American forces around the chosen reservoir because they know that they're relatively canalized there and they're in a tough spot. And they're going to start eliminating major pockets of U.S. and U.N. resistance. So as this happens, 132 Infantry is about the most nor- the northernmost unit in on the American in the American lines. So. Task Force or Regimental Combat Team 31 is a little bit spread out, and 132 Infantry is way up there at the north. They get hit early and hard on the 27th. Now, something that's kind of interesting is after this attack, and there's a fair amount of casualties, but the Chinese kind of slow down a little bit, almost thinking maybe they did it. Maybe they, they knocked off this American unit. So some American commanders come in and take a look at the scene and say, like, hey, it's nothing. Look, they already stopped attacking. It was just a, uh, it was an anomaly. They're not strong enough for a big offensive. And that was kind of one of the thoughts in and around the Chosen Reservoir was that the Chinese weren't really going to do something this staggering. But then on 28 November, they did. And they continued their attack, and it just became overwhelming for Regimental Combat Team 3-1 and Don Faith's 132 Infantry. Now, Faith is going to be awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions over the period of about five days. And... What's interesting in his story is that there's not just one little thing he did. He was just an incredible leader nonstop during some of the most horrific battlefield conditions that the U.S. Army has ever faced. So during this battle of the Chosen Reservoir that started on November 27th, you're talking about negative 30 Fahrenheit weather. It's hard to grasp what that means. But to, I mean, well, here's what it means. When a soldier gets shot, it's a real question of do you even cut away their clothing to treat the wound? Because if you do that, they could die from exposure. Think about that. Think about having to make that decision. Your buddy gets shot in the leg and he could bleed out. Takes shrapnel in his, in his abdomen and he might bleed out. But if you open up his jacket, he could die from the cold. So you have to make that decision. 
The medics have to make that decision. The soldiers in the front line have to make that decision. And faith has to make decisions around that over and over again. How do we best dig in? How do we reinforce? You know, what do we need to keep this fight going? And eventually he gets the call to start to move back to tie in with the rest of the regimental combat team. This is going to be Colonel Al McLean making that call. He says, come back, let's tie in, um, kind of reinforce our lines on the 28th as, in another, as another attack is kind of materializing. He starts to do that, and that day, Colonel McLean is going to be um, shot and killed. So Lieutenant Colonel Don Faith will quickly find himself in charge of not only 132 Infantry, but the entire regimental combat team. All of a sudden, you know, 2,500 soldiers fall under his command. And it's not just 2,500 soldiers. It's 2,500 that are now, they're realizing, surrounded by Chinese forces. The Chinese didn't just hit the northernmost element and try to push through the American lines. They circled around to the east, and they cut off the escape route that would have gone south along the border of the Chosen Reservoir to link back up with the Marine units on the other side of the reservoir and to the south. So Faith is now in charge. He has... His unit has moved back in, his old unit now. He's now a regimental commander in charge of 2,500. And he's having to decide what's the next move. He's getting a lot of information about people might show up to reinforce. We're going to have people come in here. We're going to bring other units to help you out. But he's getting hit on all sides. And he's having to bounce around from one foxhole to the next. And one thing worth mentioning here is the cold is so extreme that soldiers would die in their foxholes without being hit. It was that cold. A soldier would be on guard, and when somebody come to change out shifts with them, the, soldier, the, the guy might be dead. Not wounded, just died of cold because of the negative 30-degree temperature. But what are you going to do? You have to stay on guard because the Chinese are attacking. They're attacking from every direction. Faith throughout this is having to make hard decision after hard decision. One of those is how do we get my guys out of there? Because you could move in a couple different directions, but you have wounded. You can't just leave the wounded. Again, minus 30 degree temperatures. If you leave somebody wounded on the battlefield, you might as well kill them, right? They're not going to survive. There's, there's no, even if they're captured by the Chinese, are they actually going to have any realistic chance of, of getting treatment before they die of exposure? No. So if you want to leave that area and you want to have any chance of saving your guys, you have to be able to take the wounded with you. Well, to take the wounded with you, which is stacking up. There's a lot of wounded. There's only one exit. Faith knows that. His men know that. The Chinese know that, which is a problem because they're putting in roadblocks along the southern exit out of their position. So the fighting rages for a few more days. And then Faith makes the call. It's time to break out. We have to push through this perimeter or we're not going to make it. But there's a problem. Again, we're talking about all of the crazy decisions he has to make over this period of period of time they don't have enough men to do everything that they need to, right? There's equipment, there's tents, there's radios, there's, there's supply, there's food, there's cooks, there's all these other things, but there's not going to be enough people anymore to move them out. So you have to start making decisions. Can we get that howitzer out of here, that cannon? Maybe not. When we pass it, blow it up, leave it. Starts pulling people out of other jobs to serve as infantry because they have to have protection as they're moving down this road because the Chinese know that's the way they're going to go. So Faith has to send guys forward to essentially clear openings so this, this column of able-bodied and a lot of wounded soldiers can move through. But, and this is where I think you kind of the coolest part of Faith's story, 
He's a regimental commander. He's got 2,500 people in his command. There's a lot of places where he can be to direct this fight effectively. But he refuses to ask his guys to do something that he won't do himself. So instead of sitting back and directing the fight from any number of positions, he is involved and leads many of these charges into Chinese positions on the hillside. These Chinese positions are overwatching the road. Remember, there's steep elevation changes. There's switchbacks. There's drops. There's it's a mass. Sometimes it's down to one lane gravel road along the side of this reservoir. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be moving. And the Chinese know that. So they set up ambushes. They set up attacks. They, they're waiting for the Americans to come through. And they're met by Faith and his men, literally Faith and his men, assaulting a, you know up these hills into enemy fire to knock out one position after another, after another, after another. Again, that is going to be some of the most dangerous fighting during this campaign. And the incredibly cold you know, deep snow, minus 30 degrees, charging forward into enemy machine gun fire. But Faith won't ask his guys to do it if he won't do it himself. So he gets up, leads the charge over and over and over again. Eventually, they run into a Chinese roadblock. Well, there's quite a few they run into. They run into a Chinese roadblock, and Faith again is leading the charge to knock out this roadblock to clear the room for his column to make its way out of that deadly pocket where they're encircled to link back up with American lines. During one of these assaults, he is wounded pretty severely by a enemy grenade, but refuses any sort of treatment and stays in a truck bed or stays in a, a, a the cab of a truck so he can maintain command and control. Further along their advance, that truck is hit by uh, quite a bit of enemy fire, and he is shot and killed. On let's see, it would have been December first, nineteen fifty, at the age of thirty-two. Now. Because he continued to press the advance, because he continued to clear those hillsides for his column to continue movement, one thousand I think it was approximately 1,000 American soldiers survived. No, it's closer to 1,500, excuse me. Closer to 1,500 Americans survived that portion of the battle from Regimental Combat Team 31 on the eastern side of the Chosen Reservoir that, I mean, look, the odds were that they all got wiped out. That's how it was planned. That's how it was being carried out. That unit was... It was greater than 50-50 chance the entire organization was decimated. But because Faith made the tough decisions to press forward and then decided we're not waiting, we're going to go, and then leading the charge to motivate his men to actually push through these horrible, horrible, nasty conditions, he helped save the lives of of, upwards of 1,500 Americans during the initial part of that Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. There was still a much larger breakout that happened. Now, to wrap up the story of Lieutenant Colonel Don Faith, to end on... You know, I, I think in on a positive note here, he was listed as missing in action for a period of time because that column continued. But remember, they barely have the ability to carry their wounded. They certainly don't have the ability to carry their dead. So he was left in that vehicle. Other people were able to relay what happened. I think it was the driver actually survived that engagement and said, I saw him shot and killed. So his family, you know, for what it's worth, um, would have received, you know, relatively um, confident news that, that he had passed, but his remains were not recovered for, I think it was 64 years. I have to do the math. I think it was in 2004. Let's see, 54 years then, right? Um, I think it was 2004, maybe, maybe later than that. A team made its way to North Korea to excavate U.S. remains, and this is happening all over the world all the time, and he was brought back to the United... He was found, identified through DNA records, brought back to the United States, and laid to rest 
in Arlington National Cemetery. Now, it was during that um, that window of time where he was listed as missing. I think it was quite a while before that was changed to um, to confirm dead. But nonetheless, his family at that point would have been awarded, his wife and daughter, I believe, awarded the Medal of Honor on his behalf. That's what we have for Lieutenant Colonel Don Faith Jr., the battalion commander for 132 Infantry, and eventually all of Regimental Combat Team 31, sometimes referred to as Task Force Faith, fighting a brutal, brutal battle on the eastern side of the Chosen Reservoir in 1950 during the Korean War. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.